The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, our colleague Alison Flood speaks to Sophie Hanna about her recipe for crime fiction. And Claire will be telling us all about her trip to the Hay Festival in Cartagena. Sophie Hanna started out as a poet, but after publishing her first novel, Little Face, in 2006, she's become a crime fiction bestseller. In 2014, she turned ventriloquist, with the first of three Poirot novels sanctioned by the Agatha Christie estate, but her latest, Haven't They Grown, returns to the present day. When she came to the studio to talk to Alison, she began by explaining the peculiar mystery at its heart. Sophie, I first saw the premise of your novel when you wrote something about it on Twitter and I was immediately obsessed with reading it. So (laughs) you've got a line on the the front cover here of Haven't They Grown? Twelve years have passed, the children don't look a day older. Why? Um, So I wanted to know, why on earth did this come to you? It's such a chilling premise and it plays out so well across the course of the book. There's no kind of supernatural explanation or anything like that Mm -hmm. as to why. Basically... Beth um, decides to drive past the home of her friend who she hasn't seen for 12 years. She watches her and her kids get out of the car and Thomas and Emily haven't aged a day. They still look five and three. Um, A lot of the idea came from a real-life thing that happened and it's exactly the same as it is in the book. So the part about the children who haven't grown is totally made up. That (laughs) did not happen. Uh, But it did happen that a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for probably, not 12 years, but maybe six or seven years, had come into a lot of money and bought basically a mansion that happened to be very near this football pitch that I was having to take my son to. And it was just one of those coincidences. So while my son was playing football, I thought, I'll just go and have a nosy at the mansion. And while I was parked outside, I just started to have various strange thoughts. And one of them, you know, first of all, I was thinking, it's really weird when you go, when you do anything in the present that sort of almost feels like visiting the past. So even though this was a new house, I knew that it belonged to my old friend and just being there made me think about the past. And then I thought, wouldn't it be weird if while I'm here, she drives up in her car and goes through the gates and gets out and there she is and I actually see her as well as the house. Um, And then I thought, imagine if she had her kids with her in the car and they looked exactly like they had when I last saw them. That would be weird. Well, that would be really weird. I mean, why, why would you think that? <laughs> I don't know why it entered my head. Yeah. But I did just sort of almost have a visual picture of her getting out of the car in the driveway and then opening the back door and these two little kids hopping out of the car and them being exactly the same. Mm. And then I just, as soon as I'd thought that, I thought, oh. That's actually so sinister. What would I do? I mean, if that actually happened, which I know it never would, but if it did, what would I do? Because I would know that what I was seeing was impossible and yet I would trust that my eyes were seeing what I thought they were. Um, And it just went from there. And, you know, 10 minutes later, I was like, I have to write a book in which that is the starting point. And Mm -hmm. when I had that thought, I had no idea at that point how I would resolve that very strange initial scene but I knew I had to do it and then and then it just stayed in my mind and I did various other projects first but I always knew I was going to write a book called Haven't They Grown starting with these children that apparently haven't grown in 12 years. Yeah that was going to be my next question because Beth and her kids and her husband work through various scenarios trying to think 
why why have you seen this have you gone mad did you see something was it just kids who looked similar they work out all of these possible explanations and I was going to say was that you too were you kind of trying out different things that that might explain this as as you were writing um I don't think so because fairly soon after having the initial idea I knew what I wanted to be the explanation so I knew the the ending that I was working towards Mm -hmm. So lots of the explanations that Beth and her family discuss as possibilities, I'd already ruled out. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted to, for the benefit of the reader, start by having some apparently sensible people just sitting there saying, well, OK, we know this can't have, you know, we know that children do grow up. Mm-hmm. This can't be true. And yet you've seen it. So what might be the explanation? Because I think it's really important in a book especially in a thriller where there's something really outlandish, the reader wants to be reassured that everyone in the book knows how weird it is. Mm -hmm. Because it's always bad if the reader's thinking, I think this is really weird, but they all seem to think it's normal. Then the reader feels really like, I can't identify these Mm -hmm. people at all. Uh, And so I I kind of wanted to, to to reassure the reader that everybody, Beth, her husband, her kids, they all know. That, that this, as she thinks she's seen it, is literally not possible. Mm-hmm. So there has to be an explanation. But then when they start getting into what the explanations might be, most of them are so absurd that they are ruled out straight away. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that the parents have invented some special anti-aging drug. And, you know, so they all kind of, while they're still in shock about what Beth seems to have seen, they're also able to sort of take the mickey out of these more ludicrous end of the scale of possibilities like you know cloning and anti-aging drugs and all of that kind of thing I like the fact that Beth always felt clear about what she had seen as well she didn't really doubt herself she it wasn't one of those those books where her her mind she she's sort of lost in her own mind wandering around thinking that she's she's confused she was pretty sure that she'd seen this despite nobody believing her or yeah, despite she, no she one. was absolutely sure of what mm. she'd seen uh, and I very much didn't want to write a book where because sometimes in a thriller where the heroine's or the protagonist's mental state is a possible issue, it's always signalled in a very clear way. You know, if you have a a heroine in a thriller saying things like, I don't remember much or I can't really, maybe I'm, you know, falling apart and all this, then that's a signal to the reader, okay, this woman's perceptions are are not Mm. necessarily at all reliable. And it's really important for Haven't They Grown as as a novel that... Beth has to be a reliable witness, otherwise it's not interesting. You mm. know, if it was just that she's bonkers and she hallucinated these two children, yeah. then, you know, fine. But there's no massive mystery. Yeah. And what I loved about the idea was specifically that there was this inexplicable real perception and Beth isn't going mad. Um, but at the same time, what she's seen is so impossible that however cogent and coherent mm-hmm. she presents as, there will be people, and there are in the book, who say, no, 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 dear, you couldn't possibly have seen that because it's impossible. And then it's frustrating for her because she's like, I know it's impossible, yeah. but I also know that I saw it. So what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Where do we go from here? Yeah. 
You've always loved the impossible twist right from Little Face when you have the woman who is sure that it isn't her baby in the cot and her husband says it is. Or um, another one of my favourites, The Other Half Lives, where a man confesses to the murder of a woman who's still alive. I wanted to know, have you ever painted yourself totally into a corner with your crazy twists that then you can't find a realistic, plausible explanation for them and had to be like, cast the novel aside and start again? <laughs> I've never, I've never come up with a premise so ambitious that I can't eventually solve it. The hardest one that I came up with was The Other Half Lives, because if a man confesses to the murder of a woman who definitely isn't dead, where can you go from there? Like, <laughs> what on earth could be going on? Um, so that was really hard, and that took me nine months to think of any way to make it work. Writing for nine months? No, or no, just no. Thinking? Uh, just having it in my head, knocking mm-hmm. around fairly resigned to the probability of having to give up on it because I couldn't think of a scenario where that would ever happen and then one day it just all came to me and I was like that is how it could happen in a way that isn't disappointing because obviously you could just have the man on the last page going do you know what I got it wrong I didn't kill her after all silly (laughs) me that would be massively disappointing so it's not only coming up with an answer it's coming up with an answer that is really satisfying and isn't going to disappoint anyone but since the other half lives when I really thought I might have to admit defeat mm-hmm. and suddenly the entire story came to me. Ever since then, I 100% believe and trust that I will come up with an answer to any premise I come up with. But it's not that what I love is the impossible premise. So the twist, there's never an impossible if there's a twist at the end of the book, then that is an explanatory thing that mm. makes things make more sense. Um, the twist is usually just a surprising element to the ending. But the thing I'm addicted to is the impossible premise, mm-hmm. where the book starts with something that makes the reader think, no way. And then she the can't child, get out of this one. Yeah, yeah, because, and the reason I love these books was that the first crime writer I really fell in love with was Agatha Christie. And what I loved about her books was that, that she so often started her stories with a premise that was so outlandish or apparently impossible and yet there it was happening Mm -hmm. and I loved those books so much because the mystery factor and the suspense is ratcheted up and increased so much if it's not just a mystery where you can think of loads of possible solutions and Mm -hmm. most mysteries you can think of quite a few that's the point in my life when I became very fond of those kind of super ambitious premises. Yeah. I was I was reading yesterday about the Detection Club, which Agatha Christie and other writers set up in 1930, and I was reading that they had a set of rules for members um, that you must make no use of feminine intuition or divine revelation or mumbo-jumbo or coincidence, and that um, you mustn't conceal vital clues from your readers, and there must be no sudden appearances of identical twins, things like that. Yeah. I wonder, do you have a set of rules like that for yourself? Are you signed up to the Detection Club set of I rules? I am a member of the, I am a member of the Detection Club. Do you still have club? to sign... Um, Sign no, like I would that. never. <laughs> I would never feel bound by anything like that in my writing. I think yeah. I do have a set of rules, but I don't think I know what they are. But mm. you know, because I have been reading the genre for so long and writing it for so long, there are definitely things I would and wouldn't allow myself to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, coincidences is an interesting one because I do allow the odd coincidence in my books, but not if the coincidence is what we're relying on to solve the mystery. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, for example, in one of my books, there's a coincidence that somebody who is relevant to a case the detective is investigating happens to be travelling on a, in a vehicle with the detective. But it turns out not to be a coincidence because the thing the t detective is investigating is based in a particular location. This other character is involved in the story and she too is going to that same location. So it's just... A re mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a reason for it. Yeah. So I think coincidence is okay as long as it... And, and I think twins are okay. You know, if I had a detective and I said in chapter one, you know, I'm a brilliant sleuth, amateur sleuth, and my twin sister, Marjorie, always helps me solve every case, <laughs> then there we are. That's part <laughs> of my background. I've got a twin. She helps me with cases. Yeah. But we're not relying on the twin to explain why someone apparently was in two places when yeah. it's relevant to the plot. Sure, sure. So all these things have, you know, gradations, I mm -hmm. suppose. Yeah. When I read crime novels, I never guess what the answer is going to be. And I, I never mind that. It's part of the pleasure for me is just seeing it slot into place and being like, oh, that was so clever. When you read them, do you like to try and work out right from the start about who about what the solution might be? Or are you happy to, to read and enjoy? Um, I don't really try and work it out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm, generally, I'm, I'm happy to just read and I'm looking forward to the detective or the author being cleverer than me and surprising me at the end. And that's sort of the ideal mm -hmm. crime fiction scenario. But very often, I start to get a feeling that I know where it's going and who <laughs> the baddie's going to be and why. You mentioned Agatha Christie. You're, you, you are up to your fourth yeah, Poirot just, book just now. Yeah, just handed in the fourth. Are you still enjoying it? Love it. Yeah, really, really love it. And actually, writing two very different kinds of crime novels makes me love both of them more. It's just, I don't know whether I would ever have written a historical crime novel if the Christies hadn't asked me to mm -hmm. write Poirot. But now that I write, you know, crime novels set in 1930 and crime novels set now, it just makes me much more aware with every idea I have. It's like, OK, I have a choice. Is it going to be better suited to being this kind of story? Mm. Is this one for Poirot or is it one for my contemporary series detective Simon Waterhouse and Charlie Zayla or is it a standalone mm. with Haven't They Grown I strongly felt it had to be a standalone because from the minute Beth sees those kids who haven't grown it's just so linear and simple and straightforward it's like right I've seen this what do I do now go and investigate a bit mm -hmm. well then she finds something even stranger what does she do next what does she do next and it just was so linear and direct and I knew I had this massively surprising and shocking twist at the end and I just thought no I don't want to I don't want to have any detectives I just want it to be tunnel vision mm. Beth's point of view until she works out what the hell's going on yeah um, but it's just really nice to know that there are those choices yeah um, you know I could I suppose have made this story into a Poirot novel but it didn't feel right um, you, you didn't write crime at all until 2006 you were a published and acclaimed poet um, had you secretly been wanting to write crime all yes. that time oh, totally. but you're channeling it into poetry <laughs> well no the poetry is very different with the poetry which I also I love writing poetry I that for me is more about expressing individual thoughts feelings capturing moments you know it's a very different it doesn't have a sort of narrative function so I mm -hmm. wrote poetry 
for a, from a very different place, I think. Uh, but I had always, as a kid, as a teenager, I'd always written murder mystery stories um, and I tried to get them published very young, but they were rubbish. <laughs> so everyone quite rightly rejected them. And then at the same time, as I was having a couple of very immature crime novels rejected, my poetry was starting to get published. And I just thought, clearly, I can write poetry much better than I can write crime fiction. I'll concentrate on the poetry, which I did mm -hmm. for 10 years. And that was that was the phase when I was sort of known as a poet. Um, and then when I had my first baby, I had the idea for Little Face, which then became my first published crime novel. And I just thought, maybe I could still write crime. You know, just because I wasn't very good at it 10 years ago doesn't mean that I'll still be not very good at it. I'll just have one more go with this brilliant idea I've just had about a baby whose mother thinks the baby's been swapped for another baby. No one believes. So I thought, I'll try this. And if it doesn't work this time, then I will accept that I can't write crime fiction. Mm. Uh, and that was Little Face. And, and I've been writing crime fiction ever since. Yeah. And any poetry anymore? Or not really? Well, I still do write poems, but really rarely. Um, I... Crime fiction sort of took over as my main form of expression, mm -hmm. and I and I loved it so much it became all-consuming. And then I have wanted to write, and I have written other things, but not so much poetry. So I wrote a self-help book mm -hmm. called How to Hold a Grudge, which is all about why holding grudges is actually good for you and makes you more forgiving, not less forgiving, which is not what we're all taught. So I wrote that, and then I, I co-wrote with a musician friend of mine two musicals. Oh, I did not know that. Did you not know that? <laughs> no. So I, I am so obsessed with these musicals. I honestly think they're brilliant, and I'm, I'm sort it's of... Very modest. <laughs> no, but I just love writing. Like, they may not be brilliant, you know, in a sort of technical, expert way, but yeah. they're brilliant. I, I just love them. They're sort yeah. of my, my current hobby. Uh, and I'm just trusting that... One day I'll be walking down the street and Cameron McIntosh will be walking past. And then I'll just go up to him and say, Cameron, I've got these two amazing musicals that you really need to... Have listen. they been performed? They have been performed. So one of them's a murder mystery musical. Amazing. So if you imagine like the mouse trap, but with 13 catchy songs. And the second one is a musical locked room mystery. I wanted to, to finish just by asking you, what is it that you think we love about crime fiction? Why why do we read so much crime fiction? Why what, why does it speak to us? So there's loads of answers to this, and I've heard lots of crime writers answer this question. And some say it's you know crime fiction is a brilliant vehicle for analysing what's wrong with society. Some people say that we all like you know the battle between good and evil, where good wins. And I think those are both definitely elements but I think the real reason that makes crime so sort of addictive is that sort of puzzle and solution combination so I think crime fiction is the only genre that accurately reflects most people's motivation that gets them through their day-to-day -day life if you think about most of our day-to-day -day lives if we knew exactly what was going to happen we just wouldn't be bothered to get out of bed in the morning we're constantly puzzling over things you know am I going to have a good day at work today or a bad day am I going to get that promotion does my partner really love me or are they in love with Barbara instead just all the things we puzzle over and we often don't get the answers in real life and we just have to go on and on 
still not knowing the answers that we're puzzling over. And so to have a genre like crime fiction, which deliberately incites your curiosity and desperation to know and solve the puzzle with a built-in promise that the puzzle will be solved, I think it's that. And for me, it's that. That's what makes me love crime fiction. You know, I'm, I may not know the answers to anything else I'm desperately puzzling over in my life, but I do know that if I'm desperately puzzling over something in a crime novel, then I will get the answer. That was Sophie Hanna. Yeah, she's so English, isn't she, compared to my... <laughs> I feel I've been in a completely different world to Agatha Christie's Poirot. <laughs> They're transported back for a moment. <laughs> Haven't They Grown is published by Hodder and Stoughton in the UK and by William Morrow in the US under the alternative title Perfect Little Children. After the break, we'll be heading for Hey Cartagena and hearing from the one and only Margaret Atwood. Hello, I'm Max Rushton and this is Football Weekly. We cover the football, all the football, from the serious... It was the most cowardly, disgusting press conference I've ever seen. ...to the analysis... When you put them in into the actual games, Liverpool are getting more points against XG than Leicester. ...to the nonsense. And I will be having five English pounds on him to be called a bootner. What? What? Christian Benteke? Listen to Football Weekly from The Guardian on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Last week, Claire went off to Colombia for the 15th Hay Festival in Cartagena, the coastal city immortalised in the novels of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So what did you find there? Well, Richard, among other things, I found a first edition of Love in a Time of Cholera autographed in black ink by the man himself with a drawing of a tall sort of daisy-like flower which he apparently used whenever he was signing a book for somebody special to him. So, I mean, it was a bit... bit wonderful to see it it wasn't just any old bookshop signing it was a first edition written for inscribed for a a relative or a close friend um but uh, and as the thing about love in the time of cholera is that as anyone will tell you who knows it Cartagena is like a third character in it it's the city where Florentino stalks Femina um throughout a whole long lifetime um, and one of the things I did while I was in, in the city was to go on a Marquez food tour. I know it sounds a bit cheesy. It was a bit cheesy. There was, there was cheese involved. Was cheese. <laughs> there was quite a lot of cheese involved. Um, but it involved stops for lemonade in the arcade of Scribes, where Florentino wrote his letters for the illiterate, which is still recognisable as Marquez's arcaded gallery across from a little plaza where carriages and freight cars drawn by donkeys were for hire, where popular commerce became noisier and more dense and popular. Popular commerce involves lemonade stalls and ho- maybe not donkeys, but certainly clip-clop horses and carts. So what about that first edition? Did you bring it back? No, I'm afraid it was a bit beyond my means. <laughs> but it, it was a real thrill to find the bookshop, which is a stall built into the city walls where Marquez apparently used to sit and browse in the shade. And you can uh, still imagine him there, can you? Absolutely. I mean, you can coffee Im- to hand, you maybe can- a brandy. Exactly. And I and I did come away with a very nice little Argentinian edition of Los Funerales de Mama Grande, which is Big Mama's Funeral in English, I think, which was a novella which was published five years before 100 Years of Solitude and is said to have marked the first appearance of magic realism. And here it is, Richard, still in its little plastic plastic folder. It's not a first edition, It's from, but it is from 1970. So. There's an alarming green figure on the cover with some red eyes that do look very magical. So I'm going to have to learn to read Spanish, unfortunately, but this is... This um, is a, a small matter. <laughs> well, this is my primer. <laughs> I also bought, um, because I, I cannot resist a book, even when I have a, 
a very small quantity of hand luggage arrived. I had to chuck out some clothes in order to bring back <laughs> this brick of a book, which is about the astonishing rock paintings of Chiribichetti, which are hundreds of feet up a sheer rock face in what is now a national park in the Amazonian region. So you went all that way just to buy some books? <laughs> well... The good thing about literary festivals is that they're an, an awful lot more than is in the programme. Um, the Chiribichetti paintings, according to Castaño Uribe's book, demonstrate a whole system of cosmology based on a sun god and his jaguar son. Yeah, he's writing that in Spanish, of course. Yeah, but you, they're paintings, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fantastically illustrated. And they were painted. And what is extraordinary is they were painted over a 20,000-year period, they think, right the way up into the 16th century. So on the one hand, you see sort of little stick warriors and and very diagrammatic jaguars but on the other hand you see these pictures of what must have been the inquisitors ships coming over over the the river i mean it's really astonishing and also the fact that it's they're painted so high up how on earth did they get there to do it on this huge sheer rock face they must have been climbing and with with the brushes in their backpacks climbing all the way well they must have had a system of pulleys because they would have had to somehow be able to take their hands away from the rock face in order to paint but anyway i mean it's one of the it's one of the sort of absolute miracles of 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 civilization that people could do these things and how did you find out about it well i i was sitting next to somebody at lunch who who and i'd been in one of several talks about climate change and one of the big themes of the festivals was how what indigenous people can teach us about how to live without destroying the universe to uh, live with rather than live against yeah in the way that we have and um, this guy just told me about it so I went on this pilgrimage to find this book and um, I found it and brought it back yeah hooray (laughs) and uh, what about the actual festival though did you actually see did you see some literary stars as well yeah, well, well, everyone will have um, their idea of what literary stars <laughs> are, and there were a lot of a lot of um, sessions with Spanish language writers who haven't yet been published in English. But one answer has to be early nineteenth-century traveller and scientist Alexander von Humboldt, who's the subject of a fabulous graphic novel by Andrea Wolfe, which we've heard about before on this podcast. Yeah, because I discovered her. I discovered it and her actually at last year's festival, before the book was even published, completely by chance. Um, so here's a snatch of her um, explaining why von Humboldt, this Prussian aristocratic traveller, is so very important to this part of the world. He gave us a concept of nature that still very much shapes our thinking today. He, is, he was so, such a polymath and so interdisciplinary that he, he brought together the arts and the sciences, for example, in a way that I think is very, very important today. So we have, look at the political debates around kind of the environment. These are debates where we are kind of facing numbers, statistics, careful legal wording. This and this is going to happen if this and this increases. And it's quite, it, nothing of that speaks to your heart or to your soul. And I'm really missing this admission that we might have to also talk about the wonder of nature, our love to nature. And that's something where which Humboldt does. So on the one hand, he's this obsessive scientist who measures all the time, but he's also completely unafraid of talking about the poetry of nature. And I think that's something that's absolutely missing in today's debates on climate change. So in that respect, I think he's very important. He also actually was the person who formulated the thinking about nature actually being in the perpetual battle with itself, wasn't it? Rather, He said he disagreed with Newton. Yes, so he, I mean, in that, and in that respect, he's very important for Charles Darwin and Darwin's kind of evolutionary theory. But I think what's very important about Humboldt today is that he 
talks about that humankind can destroy nature. So by seeing nature as a living organism, he also realizes that we have an impact on of nature. And he talks about harmful human-induced climate change in 1800. Such as, such as indigo being very damaging to the environment, intensive indigo farming. Well, who would have thought that in the early 19th century that would have been yes. on people's minds? So he, I mean, he, I mean, as he travels through South America, he notes again and again and again for example, how pearl fishing has completely destroyed the oyster stocks. In Mexico City, he talks about the local irrigation system that, that has left the surrounding valleys completely barren. And he says, humankind is raping nature. So he's really not holding back at all. There's a, there's a moment in his diary in 1801 where he talks about a possible future where we might travel to distant planets. And then he says, if we do that, we will take our lethal mixture of greed and arrogance and violence with us and we will leave these planets as barren as we've done already with Earth. So coming back to where we started, we're doing this interview in Cartagena and there is another reason for it, which is that your work is huge in South America, isn't it? Because of him being here and it's where he is really well known is in Germany and where he came from and here, which is where he did most of his work. When I started working on Humboldt, people would just go to me like, who is he? I've never heard of him. So he's almost forgotten in the English-speaking world. He's not forgotten at all in South America. In Latin America, he is a, he's a huge hero. Almost every school child. You know, there are like lots of lots of schools here called the Humboldt schools. There are monuments, there are mountains named after him because of his friendship with Simon Bolivar. And because he traveled through South America, and he really put this continent on the map. Brilliant. And you can hear more of that by searching for Guardian Books Podcast and Andrea Wolfe. But who else was there, Claire? Well, there was quite a sizable European contingent. There always is with Hay Festivals. You tend to get the same writers because they have big books um, turning up at all different parts of the world. They included the historian Bethany Hughes talking about Istanbul and its three historical incarnations. And Inwa Elams, the um, Nigerian polymath who I chaired, who got a standing ovation with his talk about masculinity and the difficulties of being an immigrant in an increasingly hostile environment. A lot of recognition there, mm. I felt, in the audience. A lot of good Latin American writers, such as Valeria Luiselli, Juan Gabriel Vasquez. But the, big, the real stadium star was Margaret Atwood, who did two sellout sessions in the 2000-seater conference or convention centre that lies just outside the old city walls, within sight of Gabriel Garcia Marquez sitting at his bookstall eating Colombian sweets, was Margaret Atwood. Um, and Margaret Atwood, I have to say, can be a bit of a prickly interviewee. I've experienced that myself. <laughs> <laughs> but her conversation with Alberto Mangel, the distinguished bibliophile who's now director of the National Library of Argentina, was as, I think was as good as any session I've ever heard. And it turned out that it was because of their friendship that Mangel took Canadian citizenship in the early 1980s. And Margaret was very funny about um, how he was younger than her because he was a hippie. And you see this gris a man with his large grey Father Christmas beard, a silver Father Christmas beard, who said, you're much younger than me, you were a hippie, I was too old to be a hippie. <laughs> Anyway, she, she showed a sort of relaxed and witty self that all her friends talk about, which I've rarely seen in public. Here's her reply to a question about the role that luck plays in the career of a best-selling author. So I have a wonderful uh, film agent in Los Angeles. He's called Ron Bernstein. He's been there for thousands of years. Uh, and he was, he's one of the film agents who never stopped reading novels, unlike some of them. Um, 
So he's seen, he's seen everything come and go. We were at the launch party of The Handmaid's Tale in April of 2017. The Trump election was in November. We had all woken up on November the 9th and said, because we were shooting The Handmaid's Tale then, we had said, we're in a different show. Not that it, anything would change, the scripts would not change, but it, we knew it would be perceived differently. The frame would be different. So instead of people looking at this and saying, ripping good story or something like that, um, they, were, they would say instead, here it comes. And that's what happened. So we're at the launch party, which, which was decorated like Gilead. So the women's washroom had a handmaid, the <laughs> men's washroom had a guardian, etc. Um, and Ron said, we've been very lucky. And I said, <laughs> Ron, you don't mean to tell me that the election of Donald Trump was lucky. And he said, well, in your case, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and I can't deny it. I'm possibly the only person on the planet who has in any way benefited from this. <laughs> so that's one thing we can thank Donald Trump for. If you want to hear more from Margaret Atwood or from any other contributors to the Hay Festival in all its various venues all around the world, you can find them by searching for the Hay Festival website's Hay Player. Ah, oh, but hang on a minute, Richard. I brought you back another present from, from Cartagena. What, which a, is, a book? Which is some, some sweets, the sort that, that, that Marquez might well have eaten. There you go, traditional so sweets. Tell me, try to guess what they are. Uh, they're round and dark, uh, chocolatey. Is that sweet or sour? There's some sort of fruit on the inside. Is that sour fruit or sweet fruit? I'm saying that's sour. That's sour, because that's the uchuva or golden berry which is actually a sort of Cape gooseberry. Uh, this, this one's different, is it? And try the other one. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's definitely sweeter. Uh, that's maracuya, which is passion fruit. A, a passion go. fruit chocolate. What could be more Marquez than passion fruit chocolate? And that's all for this week. Next week, Marza Mengiste will take us back to the 1930s with a novel of Ethiopian women fighting back against fascist Italy. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Apokujeni. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.